did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Um, and then even more alarmingly, in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, which is the same storyline. We read, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So there's a, there's a little bit of ambivalence here because in the passages we've read already, Matthew 8 and 9, it's quite clear there are different degrees and different sources of faith and sometimes there's no faith apparent at all. So, so think of the, of the situation where the, um, the, the two demon-possessed men uh, and the pigs, where's the faith there? There's no evidence that these people had faith and yet Jesus did that fantastic miracle. The only conversation that takes place is between the demons and Jesus. And yet, he, he does what the demons ask for, to be taken out of, the, of that person's body and um, taken into the pigs. So, and sometimes the faith isn't in the person who's being healed. So the dead girl has no faith, but it's, it's the father who has, who has had the faith. Um, so faith is a very interesting ingredient here and it's expressed in different ways throughout that chapter it's not the same formula given all the time there are, there are signs of great faith aren't there where Jesus is amazed he said I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel and he rebukes the disciples in the boat because they, they have such little faith when they cry out and they say Lord save us and um, uh, Jesus' verdict on that is oh you have little faith so, Jesus is doing that healing, and in this chapter, these two chapters, as I say, he does this healing, whether there is faith or not. So, and yet, throughout his ministry, there are times when he's making a big play on the importance of faith. So, what are we to, to make of that? These chapters point us to Jesus as the Messiah. This is the key point, isn't it? The miracles are never an end in themselves. That isn't the point and the reason Jesus came on earth was to just do miracles. They were always a pointer, they were a signpost to the fact that he was the Messiah and that when people saw a miracle, it was to point them and to remind them that this is what Messiah does. So Matthew eight seventeen. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. That's what Messiah does. But it, it's a small thing in a way because the bigger point is that he is the Messiah and he hasn't come just to do miracles in a sort of broad way of, a, of healing people who are sick but they're a fantastically greater miracle of saving and delivering in a spiritual sense. That's what Messiah does. Every miracle is a sign to something bigger, never an end in itself. And I think what we're seeing here in these two chapters is repeated miracles done in all kinds of situations and circumstances to keep on saying to the people, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. However he's doing it, this is the Messiah. 
And the passage in Isaiah, of course, is much bigger than this. These are just a couple of verses taken out of that passage. But it goes on to talk about all the things that this, this one is going to do. How he is going to be the saviour. How he is going to bear the iniquity of a people. And by bearing that iniquity, he's going to take their sin upon himself so that they may be delivered from their sin. And this is the Messiah we want. We don't stop at the miracles. We have to go further to the Messiah. And let me try and tackle this other perplexing um, verse in this passage here. What about verse 30? Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. So what's going on here? It's a strange one, isn't it? It wasn't done in too much secret. He had gone into the house. Um, But there were plenty of miracles being done in a very public fashion in these two chapters. And people were seeing it. They were seeing a dead girl raised to life. So you can't keep that quiet, can you? <laughs> and it's not just the people who have received the miracle, but those around them have seen what's going on. And they're saying, and of course the word gets spread around. Um, so back to the, the, the ruler's house in verse 25. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. It, it wasn't secret, was it? It couldn't be kept secret. And yet he, Jesus says to these two men who have had this blindness, don't tell anybody. The actual word, there's three words there in the original. See, none discover. See, none discover. And even more strikingly, the word that is, is uh, used here, Jesus warned them sternly, is an extremely strong piece of language. Jesus is very, very strong with them about this. It's the same word that's used about um, uh, how the disciples rebuked Mary Magdalene for pouring the ointment over Jesus. It says that they rebuked and scolded her. It's a very strong piece of language. It wasn't just a piece of advice, like, just keep this a bit quiet. It was a, don't do it. You mustn't tell anybody. You can't escape what this is. This is actually being said. The same thing was said in those um, other passages that are up there on the screen, Matthew 8, 4. We'll look at Mark 1, 43 and 44. So both the Mark and the Matthew passage um, on the screen, they refer to people who had leprosy. Now that's a special sort of disease and it was important under the Jewish law that if you had a leprous condition and considered yourself to be healed of it, it had to be verified, authenticated by a priest. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. It's the same language being used. Strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. 
but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. So we have these issues of disobedience going on here. <laughs> and it's rather, it's rather remarkable, really, the compassion of Jesus, who has just healed somebody, a marvellous thing he's done for them. He's told them to do something, and they disobey in the next minute. <laughs> um, so, of course, Jesus knew that was going to happen, but he still gives that strong warning. So what, what are we to make of this um, this idea and certainly we can say about the people who had leprosy that it was the right thing it should have been the right thing for them to go and see the priest immediately as soon as possible because if they didn't do that uh, they were going to be on the wrong side of the law and this would raise the hackles of the religious establishment that Jesus hadn't followed the Jewish law correctly and hadn't advised them appropriately so he's saying go to the priest as soon as possible wherever you can find the priest don't stop on the way get this done first so there's a kind of a logic behind that because Jesus was not wishing to have early confrontation with the religious authorities and in the second case we see these blind men they are in a sense groping towards the Messiah this is the only place in these two chapters where um, where people cry out to Jesus and use the language of Messiah. Um, let, let, let's look again at that, Matthew chapter 9. Verse 27, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Mostly the language before that has been Lord, Lord, Lord. But in this particular case, they're using the phrase son of David, which is a rather remarkable thing for them to use that language in that way, which suggests that though they were blind and in some senses restricted, hadn't actually seen any of the miracles themselves. Nevertheless, they had some understanding that Jesus was more than just a teacher, that there was something rather special about him. And... Um, so they're groping towards the Messiah, but they still have very limited understanding. So what may be going on here is the fact that these people are going to be very believable. They've just had a miracle. They could not see, and now they see. They are much more believable than anybody else in the crowd around. So whatever they say, people are going to take to heart. And yet they have this very limited understanding of Messiah. So their words are going to be powerful and they're going to say, is he the Messiah? And uh, it's, the likelihood is that this, at this particular stage in Jesus' ministry would have been a danger and limitation to Jesus' God-timed ministry because they wouldn't have enough information to pass on helpfully to the, um, to the people around them and there could be more confusion and difficulty. And Jesus was extremely sensitive to the timing of his ministry. We see that right the way through the gospel accounts. At the wedding feast of Canaan, he says, my time has not yet come. Start of his public ministry, my time has not yet come. And then at the very end of his ministry, he says, now the time has come. So day by day, 
he's walking in the footsteps of the guidance of his father and being prompted to do the things which his father has told him to do. I do always the things that my father tells me. And this wasn't yet the time. He didn't want to make the situation premature. It was important that he did everything that the father had asked him to do in that ministry and that nothing should be left out. That there would be a a perfection and a wholeness in in his teaching and his actions and his interactions and that this... um, and that this could be jeopardized by something premature. So it's wonderful when he comes, almost with a sense of relief, um, to the, the end of that public ministry. And um, I'm searching for the right passage here, but um, it's John 17. And he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It's a great thought, isn't it? That Jesus did absolutely everything that the father asked him to do. And that in those three years, absolutely everything he did was exactly what was necessary to be done. There was nothing omitted, nothing lacking. You know, we think of our lives and the... (laughs) And the lacks in our lives and the regrets and the, and the sorrows that we didn't act on God's promptings. We haven't behaved as we ought to have done. Um, we've gone in stray directions and so forth. And Jesus didn't do any of that at all. It was absolute perfection in his ministry. Just, just to be able to read the record in these gospel accounts and say, he said exactly the right thing. When he was silent, he was doing exactly the right thing. When he goes up into the hills to pray, he's doing exactly the right thing. He's always doing the thing which pleases his father. And that was necessary for his perfection and for him to be fully justified as the Messiah because he has fulfilled in obedience all the father has asked him to do. So one can understand his anxiousness or concern that nothing should interfere with that that he must be about his father's business all the time it's a good model for us isn't it it's a good encouragement for us to to make sure we're about the father's business so there's a couple of thoughts there about uh, the nature of miracles and uh, this particular challenging um, verse what I want to draw attention to tonight is the key message in, in this uh, passage. And it's a lovely thing that we come to the end of these miracles and Jesus, who has offered himself in these situations, as sometimes the people have approached him, we think of the woman with the issue of blood and she touches the coat of his garment and she's healed. So he hasn't said anything at that point. And she just touches, and then we get the father and the ruler and the uh, and uh, the master and the servant, and they're all making these very um, upfront approaches to Jesus. But here, in response to the cries of these two men, Jesus has this wonderful, wonderful open invitation, in a way, He's saying, "Do you believe that I'm able to do this?" What are they wanting? They want to, be, want, to be, want to see. 
And this is, the, this is the word that Jesus gives them. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? This is, this is so good to have this at the end of the chapter, in a way, to be able to see that this is what um, Jesus is, is offering. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? I think that's such an accessible thing, isn't it? As we read the gospel accounts, as we see more and more of Jesus, and he's, he's not demanding anything of us so much as to say, Open your eyes. Do you think I can do this? I don't know how you respond to that as well, but I find this so encouraging for faith because we're just being presented with Jesus. He's not saying, have you got enough faith for this? He's saying, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And I think Christian people, brothers and sisters, if we have any familiarity with Jesus and we're getting close to him, we will always be saying, yes, Lord, you can do this. And to be, to be personal about my own condition, I have absolutely no doubt that Jesus can completely heal me. <laughs> I've got absolutely no doubt that Jesus can heal me. And that's the question Jesus is putting to us tonight, really. Can I do this? Can I heal you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And all they have to do is say this. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lovely response. And that's the place where, where we're at. We're all at a place where Jesus is putting that question to us and saying to us in our lives, do you believe I can do this? Every single one of us has issues well, Jesus is putting that question to us. and He's saying, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Can I rid you of this habit which is just dogging you? Can I get rid of your, your anger? Can I sort out this relationship? He's just putting it to us all the time. And we see so much about the ministry of Jesus that we can say, yeah, you can do that. You can heal. The, you can stop the storm. You can raise the dead. You can certainly deal with anything we're facing, can't he? Tonight, we have we have the breadth and the bigness of Jesus' ability portrayed to us tonight. And these things seem very large to us, but Jesus is coming to us and saying, "Look at me. I'm bigger than that situation. I'm bigger than your storm." Bigger than the thing which is dogging you, the 24-7 which is on your, on your mind. I'm bigger than that. I can deal with that. We see the breadth, and it, it's lovely that Matthew has given us all these different examples just to encourage us in every way and to say he's not just the one who can deliver from a, you know, a, a, an isolated sort of situation, a kind of an expert in that particular problem. He's one who's that big who could deal with all our problems. Everybody in this room here tonight, Jesus is able to deal with your situation. Yes? Jesus the Messiah is able because he hasn't just come to deal with our problems. He's come to deal with our sin. He's come to deal with our sin. Now that's the rub, isn't it? Where we can say, my sin could he deal with my sin? You don't know how badly I've sinned. 
You don't know what's in my heart. You don't know how as a Christian I've sinned. And how wretched and uh, sort of enfeebled you can feel because, because of, of that sin. Particular to yourself. And how important that is because if we have a spot of sin upon us, we cannot face death and judgment. If we feel there is unforgiven sin in our lives, that God cannot forgive or it's just too much and so forth, we are not fit to face, to face the judgment. But Jesus Christ has come to deal with all sin. If we confess our sin, we are, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Do you know the bigness of it? That all our sin, not in part but the whole, is laid on the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. The bigness of what Jesus does. There's no spot left. There's no unforgiveness left when we come to him and confess our sin to him. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? What a releasing thing that is. We can live in the grand freedom of it and know that we can approach a throne of grace and find mercy because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Embrace that. Dear brothers and sisters, embrace that. Don't allow... Uh, yourself to get into that place where where there is the unconfessed sin uh, and just the thought that this is too much it's gone on too long nothing can be done about it Jesus can deal with that but you have to come to him and you have to ask him for that Jesus the Messiah is able our trust in him has begun and strengthened as we realize that he is able That's the point of all this, really, in the end. It's giving a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger picture of of Jesus and his ability, ability to deal with all that we need to have dealt with. So our faith sort of recedes into the background and and all it is is looking to him and saying, I'm going to trust trust you, trust you. I, I have no confidence in my faith. I'm trusting you to be the deliverer that I need. That's where, where we, we need to be. And this is such an encouraging passage for us tonight to be able to get ourselves into that place. Our trust in him has begun and strengthened as we realize that he is able. We're going to sing a song. And um, it's, it's one that's not in our books, sadly. So it has to be up on the screen. Um, I want to tell you about the writer of this song here. His name is Joseph Hart. He lived from 1712 to 1768, which was a very exciting time um, in this country because he, he lived during the days of Whitfield and Wesley and heard both those preachers. But here's an extraordinary thing about this man. He was um, 21 when he began to have serious concerns about his soul. He realized that he was a sinner and he needed a saviour. But he spent the next 24 years unconverted. 24 years he was unconverted. 
he, he just slid around in his life. He was an intelligent man as well. He was having this conviction of his sin. But he, 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 he um, fled against religion. He got into antinomianism. Um, and he was hearing all this good preaching all the time. And yet he, he couldn't actually grasp what, uh, what the gospel was about. And then, when he was 45 years old, he's converted. He suddenly realizes, for the very first time, that not the labor of my hands can fulfill the Lord's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must cleanse in you alone. And that powerful understanding of the gospel seeped into him. He became a pastor two years later of a church at the age of 47. He dies at the age of 56. And um, he's best known for some great songs, one of which is the one we're going to sing tonight. I don't know of a sort of better expression of the bigness of this gospel that is found in these, in these verses here. Let me just run through the text as it is on the screen there. So it's all in the original language. It's all 1700 stuff. Um, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, join with power. Isn't that a great, great thought? Full of pity, join with power. He's got compassion on us and he has the power to deal with us. He is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. That's the message to every one of us tonight. He's willing to deal with your sin, your, your great need. Every single one of us. Come you needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. It, even the belief and the repentance, that has to come from him as well. And he'll grant it. Because he's willing. Without money, without money, without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. Very Isaiah-like, isn't it? Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, if you just, if you wait, hoping to get better, you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to call. We read that in um, Matthew 8. I didn't come to the righteous, I came for sinners. That's wonderful, isn't it? Jesus has not come tonight for the righteous. He's come for sinners. We qualify. We're in that bracket, aren't we? <laughs> That's us. Ticking the box. That's us. We're sinners. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. This was his problem in a way. He thought he could become a better person just by doing good things. And he did good works for all those 20 years or so. Don't even dream it. Don't even think it. Don't go down there. You'll never, you'll never make it. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. You can't make yourself better. You can't make yourself acceptable in his sight. The best place to be is just to say, I need you. I need you. And this he gives you. This he gives you. This he gives you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And look, this is the incarnate God. The man on earth has ascended to heaven. He has finished his work. He pleads the merit of his blood shed on Calvary. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust 
in truth. Don't go anywhere else. We're going to him tonight. None but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. We're proud of this message, aren't we? Because there's no other. There's no other saviour out there. He's the only one. He's the only one that can deliver us. And so we, we sing with absolute gratitude for the grace of God that has come into our lives. If we have experiences, and if you haven't experienced this, this is a, this is a song for you. This is a song for you to be in that right place and to come to the end of that and to be able to say, none but Jesus can do me good and to embrace it. Do we know that maybe just play the first uh, verse through?